We are all born, um, and if it's been a while, just take a moment and remember that. Some of you, it's gonna, I'll give you a longer moment than others. It's been a while. But when you were born, you were immediately from the moment of your conception, and then certainly the moment you breathed air, born into some things. Before you'd ever done a thing, there were things that were true of you. And you began to receive all kinds of things. Love, a name. You began to step into what some would kind of sum up as an inheritance. You were born as people, as human beings who were intentionally created. And so when you were born, you stepped into an intention. You don't have to know that, praise God, because it seems like when babies are first born, it's all they can do to just survive. If we weren't there for them, they would be in big trouble. So praise God they don't have to get theology figured out yet. But they're born into, all of us, born into this incredible intention of God. And what I love is the, the, the Scriptures teach us that when we're born spiritually, part of that inheritance is that we were created in the image of our Creator. It says that God created men and women in His image. And so we reflect the image of our Creator. There's ways in which each of you uniquely represent and reflect the heart of God to the world around you and to your families. And certainly as we've walked life already in this short time with David, we can see that, right? You sit with Him, you hold Him, you walk, and already you can see the glory of God in this young man, this tiny little human who has distinct characteristics and reflects the image of God already. It's amazing. But what I love is that God also, in order to maybe kind of help us get our heads and our hearts around that, also creates us in the image of our earthly parents. And so we inherit characteristics. We look like our mom and our dad, right? Now, we don't have to publicly answer this question, but... You know, we could get into the debate about who does they look more like, right? And suddenly, you know, the internal family wars begin. It's like, you know, but I do know for Adam, he would probably say, thank goodness he looks more like his mom. Or we're praying that over time, that is the way that it goes, right? Yeah. But there is this beautiful thing, and it speaks to the reality to which we were not born into some isolated, separated, disjointed reality and existence in life. We were born into a connectedness that ultimately is grounded in this, that you were created in the image of your God. That there is a solidarity, a a, a community, a union, a relationship that was meant to mark your existence from the very moment God breathed life into you as a person. And it's reflected to us in this, that we actually carry the torch, so to speak, even if it's things like being susceptible to hiccups, you know, or having a certain color of eyes. Or... I always love these stories. They fascinate me about people who meet their birth parents later in life only to find that they laugh the same way. Or that they have these similar mannerisms, things that you would think you caught because you were around each other so much. Now, there is that as well. But there's this kind of an eight peace in which we are connected one to another. And the Bible teaches us, and the passage that you just heard is one of the clear places that teach us that this inheritance, this genetic kind of like impartation is not only physical, but it's also spiritual. 
that we've also inherited things like the image of our God, but we've also inherited some things because of the fallenness of humanity. And so when we're born into this world, men and women, human beings, we are born into the brokenness of that world. Augustine spoke of it, speaking on the very passage that you just read, that we just read together. He spoke of it and is, is kind of credited for terms that sometimes theologically we think of as things like original sin or total depravity. Tons of theological debate to be had around those things and what exactly they mean. But certainly somehow there seems to be, for most of us, not too much confusion around the fact that we are quick to brokenness. It doesn't take long in our lives before you even start to see it come out. The Bible teaches us that we inherit the fallenness of humanity. And Augustine's reflections on Romans 5, he suggests that because of Adam's willful disobedience, human beings have an inability to do the good. And sin becomes an unavoidable reality. Now, some of us think, well, that, does, that sounds kind of awful. But if you talk to parents in this room, they'll tell you very quickly how soon their kids started to do the opposite of the good. Or to push the limits. To start to spread their wings, so to speak, in an unhealthy direction. Humanity is, to sum it up, Augustine said, not able not to sin. And so we have a problem in which we are born. It wasn't a problem that was intended by God from the beginning, but the Romans teaches us it's a problem that came through Adam's trespass. When humanity fell, it had consequences not only for Adam, but for the generations that would follow. In Romans 5.12, the first verse that was read, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This isn't really my favorite thing to preach on, because usually when you talk about this, it's kind of like, well, this is really heavy, and I'm not even totally sure what to make of it all. I remember when I did the tribute to my dad at his funeral, one of the things that I had mentioned was that my dad was a sinner saved by grace. That the good things you saw in my dad's life and the incredible fruit was really a story about God, not about my dad. As good a man as he was, my dad would have not been upset with me for saying it, but my great aunt was. She came to me after the funeral and she said, You're, he was not a sinner. I said, Oh, Auntie Cora, <laughs> you know, I, I'm his son. I'm like, yeah, he was. And she, she just was so mad at me. And so finally, I just kind of left it. But... but there is something of my Auntie Cora in all of us. When we hear this, we want to buck back against it and say, come on, I'm trying my best. There's something, but there is a reality that the scriptures want us to understand because until you fully understand the problem, you will never seek a solution. Until you understand that you are in a broken place and need a Savior, you won't look for one. And anytime someone shows, a Savior shows up, he'll just offend you. And what a tragedy that would be, because the reality of it is you need him. 
through Adam's trespass, you can throw this slide up for me, uh, Anya, I think it says Adam's trespass beside it, not Adam Tippy, but. This passage of scripture lays it out this way. Through Adam's trespass came condemnation. And that condemnation resulted in this. The scriptures are pretty strong language here. Death reigned. That through this one man's sin came condemnation and death began to reign. In in his life, but also in the life of all who would be born of Adam. And we actually see the outworkings of this already. This is Genesis 3, where the trespass happens. And Genesis 4, one of his sons kills another. So we see the reign of death, of sin, the brokenness, already right away after in the Scriptures. And I think that's very intentional. To help us understand this connection, whether we like it or not. Now the problem is, we have a modern objection to this whole notion. Because in modernity, came in what I think is a problem, but what many others have toted as a great idea, which is this, I could sum it up this way, this idea of self-determination. In modernity, we decided that we, we determine our own fate. We determine our own identity. We, self-determination is, is the name of the game, right? That I, I come into this world and I'm an autonomous being who has complete say and control over my life. And so certainly there's people in my life, but their choices are their choices and my choices are my choices. Their truth is their truth and my truth is my truth. You can think or say whatever you want about me, but that doesn't really matter if I think or say something different. And the connection, this is modernity, this is one of the things that has kind of played out in our current day, in our current milieu. Modernity brought with it this notion of self-determination, and as a result, we're tempted to take issue with what the Bible says was the effect of Adam's sin on the rest of humanity. We come in with our own modern ideas and ideals, and we want to say, that's not fair. Adam ate the apple, not me. You can't pass on to me the consequences of his sin. That's not right. Right? But I would say that this Protest is a sign of our highly individualized way of thinking about our lives. That we've come to see ourselves predominantly as individuals who only share life how and when we want. So if there's connection between us, I'm in control of that. It's every man or woman for himself. Which, when I say it like that, starts to sound more to me like Lord of the Flies than it does like a world that I would want to be a part of. But I have to admit, there's a part of me that fights for it, that bucks against anything different. Biblical understanding is that our individual lives are far more connected than modernity is comfortable to say. For example, the idea of solo faith will not be found anywhere in the scriptures. This idea of people with a personal relationship with Jesus who just do it on their own. You're always going to find the people of God with the people of God. 
You're never going to find this rogue solo faith that says, I love Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. You won't find it in the Scripture. You won't find it in the Old Testament, and you won't find it in the New. If you find it, it's in stories like the prodigal son, where he tries to roll solo, and we all know how that ends until he comes back in the community. Rather, the biblical, the Bible intricately links our faith in Jesus with our life in the church. Using the language to describe the church, language like family, a body, a bride, united with one another in Christ. Now, In answer to our modern protest and the parts of our hearts, if we're honest this morning, that even feel it ourselves to push against this, I would like to say to you this morning with everything in my being, the fact that you are not a solo, individual, kind of disconnected person in the eyes of Jesus is good news for you. Even if in your own experience, sometimes... Some of us are are wanting to do life by ourselves with a lot of boundaries because in relationship we've been deeply hurt. And sometimes even when I talk about the church, I'm, I'm never unaware of the fact there's people in the room who say, yeah, right there. I would rather just do me and Jesus. Why? Because the church became a place of hurt for me. But the good news is that you are not wired that way and God wants to make a way for you to live in union, in community with his people. While we may be tempted to buck against this idea, thinking that if we do, it would let us off the hook. So we would say, I don't like this idea that Adam's sin has any consequences for me, so I reject it, now they don't have consequences for me. Right? That's why we might want to say, yeah, I'm just going to separate myself from that mess. Now I'm not impacted by it. While we might want to do that, we'd actually be, by that action, creating a massive problem in light of our own fallenness and sin. Because if self-determination rules your life, rules the day, then you are on your own when it comes time to face sin and death. You can't choose when you're on your own and when you're not. I got myself into this mess. I'll get myself out of it. Sound familiar? Uh, Kenzie and I might have talked about this before. We get each other. That's not biblical truth. That's worldly truth. That's what the enemy would try and say to you. That's what leads to works righteousness. That's what leads to disjointed and disconnected faith, to isolation. But the answer God provides for the death that reigns in the place of sin due to one man's actions came through another man's actions. So the problem came through one man, And then you participated in it. Let's be honest. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. right? But came through one man. And we might not like that, but the reality of it is God says, oh, I can can answer back to you. And again, through one man came the answer. 
And so if you can't accept or receive or understand the problem you're in because of, of humanity's brokenness, then you stand in a weird place when it comes to receive the answer because of the actions of one man. Because the answer, your salvation, your freedom, your healing, is only going to come through the person of Jesus. Just as sin came into this world and so into our lives through one man, salvation has come into the world and into our lives through one man. This is what Paul says in the scripture we Joy read for us. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Good news. So, Anya, if you could throw up another slide that I think says something like Christ's righteousness. We had the slide before about Adam's trespass leading to condemnation. What Paul tells us is that through Christ's righteousness came justification. If through Adam's trespass came condemnation, through Christ's righteousness came justification. And so through the actions of Jesus on the cross, you are declared righteous. You are justified. You are saved. Not by your actions, but by the actions of Jesus. Not by your righteousness, by the righteousness of Jesus. And so instead of the result being this reigning death, Paul twists, turns the words and says, and so now we reign in life. We reign in life. We begin to live life and life to the full. We come to experience life in the Spirit. It's through our union with Christ that we receive salvation from the reign of death that resulted from our sin. And the news, if it's already good, is even greater than that. I love this phrase throughout the passage that was read, where Paul says over and over again, he uses this language, much more. Because Jesus didn't just kind of take care of the problem. He obliterated it. I was actually trying to find some funny videos, and I just couldn't find any I felt were appropriate. But I, I, found, I did find one I almost brought of a, of a tank running over a bicycle. It was like that, and it was kind of close. I thought, yeah, like in a match between a tank and a bike, if the tank is the free gift of grace and the bike is the trespass. The trespass doesn't even compare in its power, doesn't even compare in its, in its might in its strength. Paul says, if the trespass had an impact, much more will the grace of Jesus have an impact in your life. No matter how pervasive or profound the impact of sin has been upon your life, its height, its depth, and its breadth will always pale in comparison to the grace the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. That's good news for you today. And I can say that with confidence, knowing or not knowing you, because it doesn't matter where you came from, what you've done, what you've not done, how you showed up today. I love the song we started with, Come As You Are. 
Why? Because whatever has landed you in need of a Savior pales in comparison with the power and the movement of his grace in your life. And so if you will come, you will find great transformation. You will find what Hebrews 7.25 calls this ability of God to save to the uttermost. I love that phrase. That we have a God who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for him. Uttermost. Completely. Perfectly. Absolutely. And for all time. When we come into the waters of baptism... We are there in the waters of baptism, united to Christ. And so we receive their life, not based on anything that we have done. In the waters of baptism, we, it's not about what we've done. It's part of why all the different ways I've seen baptism done, one of the things that I love about every way I've seen is that the person being baptized receives. They don't baptize themselves. I've never seen anybody go down in the tank and throw themselves under the water and, can, and the church to say, good job. Right? It's a picture that says, you're not, a, it's this in solo faith. You're being baptized into Christ and into his church. And this is a grace, and in the waters of baptism, that grace is sufficient. In fact, it is able to do much more. As Theoden's baptized today, one of the things I have come to really love about infant baptism is the way that it reflects to us a couple of beautiful truths that are always reflected in baptism. They just become glaringly obvious in this moment. One is that, like Paul said, this is a free gift. You did nothing to earn it. And that's very obvious today. Secondly, it's that we are baptized in shared life and into shared life. And again, I feel like as your son, that's reflected so beautifully today. That coming back to the thing of inheritance, as you express your faith, that there is a oneness, a union for you as a family. And there's a way in which God sees that connectedness and he honors it. And he will continue to work in and through it. And so as Theoden is, is raised up into his faith to one day declare it as his own, we do that with confidence because we are together. And church, that's not only true today, that sharedness, it's not only true of the family, it's true of this family. And so you are an incredibly important part of this moment. Both extended family, grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, but a church in a very unique way, the church is a part of this. Because, like I said, he's not being baptized into solo faith. Praise God. And it, the, the, it, it becomes so evidently true. This would be true if he was 23 and able to confess his faith on his own. It doesn't change any of these truths. They're just a little harder to see, and we can start to think it's working different. Right? We need the church to raise us to disciple us, to care for us, to make space for us. Right? We need each other. 
And so as we move uh, to baptism today, let those things be in your heart. My prayer for you today as we come to the baptism, and anytime we are uh, at the sacrament of baptism, uh, but certainly today, I want to ask you to actively participate in the time that we have now together. First, I invite you to, and this is a true invitation, and it's not my invitation to you, it's God's invitation to you to come and to participate in the life of Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're not in relationship with Jesus, you've not been in the waters of baptism yet, I want to invite you to watch and to listen and to maybe as you see that, even consider yourself, is this something that I want to consider? Do I want to consider making Jesus Lord of my life? Pay attention to the liturgy. Consider it for yourself. It's an invitation to you today to come to these same waters and be baptized. Secondly, if you've been baptized already, would you take this opportunity not only to stand as a church with the Tippies and with Theoden especially, but would you take this opportunity to remember your baptism and to renew those vows yourself, to come to this space and to be reminded that you have been set apart by no merit or action of your own, but by grace through faith. And so come and participate today in those ways And then finally, by giving and receiving. As a church, let's stand with this family today. There'll be pieces of the liturgy uh, where you get to actually speak out into their life together. Uh, And so as we we stand here together, I'm just going to pray for us. And and then we'll move into a time of confession before we come to to the baptism. Jesus, as a church, we stand up into the gospel into the good news of Jesus. And as we we do that, we take hold, Lord, of the gospel again, fresh today for us and for our lives. Thank you for the gift of the cross, for the gift of your life, and for the power of the resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, for the waters of baptism and for the glorious mystery that we are united to Christ, one body, one faith, One Lord, one baptism. Jesus, would you give us, Lord, today eyes to see you and ears to hear you. And as we come to the waters of baptism, let us encounter you, Jesus. And in, in our standing in this moment, we just recognize our commitment to Theoden, our commitment to Adam and Mackenzie. And we praise you and thank you for them in your name.